Lord Jesus, uh, once again, we're mindful of those uh, who are suffering right now, um, of the many displaced people. And Lord, uh, we pray uh, for your protection, uh, for, for your guidance for them, uh, for your peace for them, Lord. Uh, we pray for peace throughout that whole region. Uh, we pray, Lord, that your grace would be breaking through in surprising ways. Uh, we pray specifically for Angelina and Misha and their family members uh, for peace and protection. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we do pray um, that uh, your church would rise up during this time to be your hands and feet in the world, uh, to love in the way that you loved uh, when you died on the cross. Uh, Lord, help, help the church to practice that kind of sacrificial love all over the world uh, to help bring peace and uh, to, to bring hope uh, to people who need it. And uh, Lord, we just invite you uh, to work in our hearts as we study your word this morning. We thank you for the chance to open it up together, and we trust, Lord, that you are going to work in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so as Keith said, today we're continuing our series, Before the Cross. Uh, we started it last week. Uh, we are in what is usually known as the season of Lent, which is the time of preparation before the celebration of Easter. And I thought a good way for us to prepare for Easter weekend this year would be for us to study Jesus' words uh, before he was arrested. So in the Gospel of John, there is this long section of red text, you know, if you have a Bible that puts Jesus' words in red, and there's a lot we can learn from it. It's what Jesus said to his disciples between the Last Supper and his arrest before going away to be crucified. And uh, I like to say, you know, if somebody is lucid in their last 24 hours of life and they know that they're going to die, you want to pay special attention to what they say during that time, right? And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to uh, John chapter 14, starting in verse 12. We're picking up right where we left off last week. John 14, 12. And uh, just to set the stage here, where we left off last week, one of the disciples, Philip, he had just said to, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. In other words, Jesus, show us God. You know, Philip reminds me of Moses long before him, saying, Lord, show me your glory. And I think that we can identify with that request, right? There's this part of us, we, we want to see God. We want to touch the infinite. We want to comprehend the mystery. We want to grasp the, the source of everything, right? And Jesus' answer is so profound. He says, Philip, don't you realize after all this time of being with me that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen God. In other words, don't you realize after traveling with me for three years, after seeing the miracles, the walking on water, the turning water into wine, the healings, after hearing my teaching and seeing the way that I interact with the religious leaders and, 
and, and, and, and, and witnessing my life for all these years, can't you tell that God is in me? Can't you tell that if you have seen me, you have seen God? Specifically, the way Jesus puts it is, if you're having trouble believing my words, think about the works that I have done. And where we're picking up today, he's continuing talking about his works, but he's shifting the conversation to a new and exciting direction. Okay, ready? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What? <laughs> we have to spend some time on these verses, don't we? We can't just breeze over these. If you were here last week, you might remember that I said, I want to get through all of the farewell discourse before Easter, so that's about 20 verses a week. Change in plans. We're only doing these three verses because I cannot imagine trying to tack on 17 verses to these. They're too interesting and they raise too many questions. So this is all we're doing today. We're camping out here and we might go long still. <laughs> so what does Jesus mean? Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, some people say, well, Jesus is talking to the disciples. The disciples have a special role. This is, this is really only for them, not for us. But I don't buy that. You know, Jesus doesn't say, very truly, I tell you, if you believe in me, you will do the works I have been doing. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, right? Another reason that I think this is for us is the reason Jesus gives for why this is all going to be possible, right? He says, because I am going to the Father. What, is, what does he mean by that? What Jesus is talking about there is what we call his ascension, after Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible tells us that he ascended to heaven. Now, we miss today what that word ascension really means. We hear ascension and we think all it means is that he like floated upward, right? But when you hear ascension, you want to hear a royal connotation, like of a king ascending his throne, right? So, so the word ascension it means something like Jesus is crowned and then he takes his rightful place on the throne of authority beside the Father in heaven. What it's saying is that Jesus becomes or takes his place, his rightful place, as the supreme authority in heaven and in earth. So when Jesus says, all this is going to be possible because I'm going to the Father, he's basically saying, this is going to be possible because I am going to be seated on that place of highest authority. Now, is Jesus still seated in that place of highest authority? Is he still with the Father? Yeah, he's still there. And if he's still there, it seems like these words should apply to us today. 
But that raises so many questions, doesn't it? Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. How can that be? Have you ever walked on water? Have you ever turned water into wine? Have you ever raised someone from the dead? Or calmed a storm with, through your command? I have not. I'll be honest. And what about this, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. I always end my prayers with, in Jesus' name, but I don't always get what I ask for. So what happens is people will, will look at these verses and sometimes they'll say, well, it's just for the disciples. But if you make the case that no, clearly it's intended for us today, then people feel like they're left with two options. One is, I must not really believe. And two is, I guess Jesus was wrong. And what I want to say this morning is, there are better options than those. And I want us to avoid either of those conclusions. So, how do we do that? Well, let's start with that, that first promise. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these. There's two questions that we have to ask. One, what does Jesus mean by works? And two, what does he mean by greater? So let's talk about works. You know, many of us hear works, and our mind automatically goes to miracles, signs and wonders, right? Astonishing, supernatural things. And I would say that that is part of what Jesus has in mind here. Not the whole story, but part. Later in the Bible, we're told what happened as the disciples started to spread Jesus' message, especially in the book of Acts. And if you read through the book of Acts, there's stories of miracles. There's stories of signs and wonders. Now, I would not say that the miracles that the disciples do are greater or, let's say, more impressive than the ones that Jesus did. But there's some impressive stuff in there. There's, uh, they pray for some people and they, they, uh, who, who are unable to walk and they stand up. Uh, somebody has their sight restored after being blind. They, they, some of them speak in languages that they've never learned. Uh, Paul even prays for someone who has just died and they resuscitate. So there's some impressive miracles, absolutely. Not necessarily more impressive than, than Jesus, but impressive. And there have continued to be stories throughout the history of the church of people who believe in Jesus experiencing miraculous things. Now, of course, not all miraculous claims are true. We should not be naive, right? Just because somebody claims to bear the name of Christ, and they say that they've experienced a miracle, we shouldn't be so gullible as just to say, oh, I'm sure that they're telling the truth, right? But some miraculous claims come from credible sources, and they have compelling evidence for them. Maybe you have experienced one yourself. Back in the fall, we had a showing of a documentary here called Send Proof. Who was here for that? Raise your hand if you were here for that. 
Yeah, we had a pretty good turnout for that. Um, that was a documentary about a man who was looking for evidence of miracles. And I thought it was very fair. I liked it a lot. I thought it was excellent. Uh, if, if you want to see it and you need any help uh, acquiring it, let me know. Uh, you can watch for yourself and judge whether you think that it's fair and objective. But one of the things I appreciated about it is that there was a skepticism throughout the whole documentary. Uh, the first half was mostly this guy uncovering false claims and identifying teachers who had said things that were not true. But in the second half, he, he tells some stories, he interviews some people, and there are some, some miraculous accounts that are extraordinarily difficult to dismiss. Uh, one that I remember was about a woman named Marilyn Ford, uh, who, when she was 16 years old, I believe this was in the 50s, uh, she was at work, and all of a sudden, her sight was gone. And she went to the doctor, and the doctors looked at her eyes, and they determined that she had severe macular degeneration, juvenile macular degeneration. And they said, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do for you. You just have to get used to being blind, basically. You are going to be blind for the rest of your life. And she was devastated by that. But of course, she tried to adjust. She learned Braille. She got married. She was able to get married. Thirteen years passed. And then one night, her husband prayed for her to have her, her sight restored. And it happened. Her sight came back. And that was, I believe, 40-something years ago. She's about 80 now. She still has her sight. Uh, she, she went to the doctor. They determined, yes, your sight has returned. Yes, we have no explanation for why. And uh, the documentary claimed you, they're, they're, the medical records are there. I went in online and saw the supposed documents from the doctors. And you know, the skeptic might say, well, every now and then there's an improbable event where some sort of illness corrects itself. You know, something could have just clicked in the brain and woken up that part of, you know, the brain that was, had gone haywire or whatever. These things happen, they're improbable, but they happen. But then how do you explain the fact that this didn't happen when she was just brushing her teeth, right? It happened when someone prayed specifically for it to happen. So yeah, sure, improbable things happen, but then you have to take it a step further and try to explain why that improbable event happened coinciding with that moment, right? So assuming all that is true, that story, if that's not a compelling evidence for God's power to heal, I don't know what could be, right? So there are stories like this. Stories of people who believe in Jesus, doing miracles, or, explaining, or experiencing miracles. And they certainly don't happen all the time. Plenty of people who believe in Jesus ask for miracles, and they don't happen. There's a mystery there. But there are stories like Marilyn's, too. And I think those stories are part of what Jesus had in mind when he said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. 
But here's the thing. We make a huge mistake when we think that the works that Jesus was doing were just miracles, just supernatural things, right? He did all kinds of other works, right? He spoke the truth, spoke the truth to authorities that needed to hear it, right? He rejected the idols of money and political power. He welcomed the poor and the rejected of society. He called for love and mercy and generosity and humility. And the greatest work of all, the one that he's about to go do, is dying on a cross for the sake of the world, right? Sacrificial love. There's a lot more works here than just miracles. And remember, last week, Jesus said what kind of work defines his followers. You remember what that was? He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this, not miracles, by love by whether you do the work of love, right? So when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, the first place we should go is not to supernatural things, but to the cross. Because that's the greatest work of Christ. And that is ultimately the work that we are called to. Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me will be able to give themselves sacrificially for the world love. Now, you might say, okay, but Ryan, is that really true? Is it really true that people who believe in Jesus do that, those kinds of works? Because, you know, I think if you look at the history of the church, isn't there a lot of violence? Hasn't the church been you know, colonialist and sexist and racist and abusive and oppressive? Well, it is certainly true that over the last 2,000 years, a lot of terrible things have been done under the banner of Christian or church or Bible. That is true. And we should not make light of that. We should not dismiss that. We should not try to sweep it under the rug. We should acknowledge it. We should mourn it. And wherever we need to repent, we should repent. But it is a mistake, a huge mistake, to think that believers in Jesus throughout history have primarily caused harm. Think about it this way. Today, we live in a world where generally there are certain assumptions that we have about what's right and what's wrong. You know, assumptions like every life is valuable. Every person has inherent dignity and worth. You know, people, people should have access to good health care. Violence is bad. Humility is good. And if we live in an environment where these values are 
practiced or assumed, we start to think that they're just inborn. Human beings just have these values naturally. Any reasonable person would agree with them. And it's just things like religion that get in the way. But are those values really inborn? Is it really natural for human beings to assume those things? Or are, are they learned? And I would argue that if we just take a step back and we look at history, it is clear that they are not inborn. They're not natural. And a huge reason why they exist today, you can draw a line from the Christian movement to the development of these values throughout especially the Western world and, and throughout the whole world. There is a direct line between the influence of people who have believed in Jesus and those values coming to our culture. Uh, several people have recommended a book to me, and I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I've read some things about it, some reviews. I've, I've read some interviews with the author. It's called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's by a guy named Tom Holland. Um, not the Tom Holland that plays Spider-Man, but uh, an older Tom Holland uh, historian. And the book is all about how the values that we assume have their origins in the Christian Revolution. Uh, Holland talks about researching ancient cultures and being horrified by how inhumane they were. Uh, he realizes that things like violence, war, uh, sexual assault, the mistreatment of women, racism, all those things are normal throughout history. Very normal. What is abnormal is for a society, a culture, to judge those things. And Holland argues that it is through the influence of Christianity that these things have been, by and large, judged. Now, you might say, well, is Tom Holland just some sort of evangelist? No, uh, he is not a Christian apologist. And I'm confident of that because I was reading an interview with him and he was asked if he believed in God. And uh, he said, I have seen no evidence that anything supernatural exists. I have seen no proof of God. That is not the kind of thing that an evangelist says, right? <laughs> So he's not doing evangelism. He's just trying to do history. And this is what he's concluded. Uh, listen to this quote from him. He says, The longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill uppity racially and socially inferior people by night, were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. And then he goes on to say, Familiarity with the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment. 
not to suffer it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. That is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. There is a lot to criticize about the church. No doubt about that. But consider this. If it weren't for the influence of the church, of believers in Jesus throughout history, we might not even have many of the values by which we criticize it for today. Did you know that hospitals didn't even exist in Rome until Christians started building them? A man named Dr. Gary Ferngren says in a publication by John Hopkins University, the hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. Same is true of orphanages. In the Roman Empire, it was Christians that got orphanages started. It was through the influence of the church because the church believed, as James says in the Bible, that religion that God regards as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. If you want more evidence that the church has helped to shape our culture's belief in the values of equality and charity and humility. Here's somebody else you can consider, this guy. Does anyone know who this man is? This man of bushy mustache? Yes, it's Friedrich Nietzsche. I recognize the mustache. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher in the 1800s. He's, I'm sure, one of the most influential philosophers who's ever lived. And uh, Nietzsche lived well after Christianity had left its mark on the values of the Western world. And he was not a fan. Uh, he said that we need to do away with Christian morality, which he called slave morality. And do you know why he called it slave morality? Because he said it promoted the kind of values that slaves would want their masters to have. Charity, pity, humility. And he said the problem with this kind of morality is it keeps the strong from really advancing and pursuing their goals. It keeps humanity from progressing because we're always trying to tend to the weak. And when we tend to the weak, we bring everybody down. So, this is what Nietzsche said. Now, Nietzsche was German, died in 1900, about 30 years later, 40 years later, Hitler and the Nazis thought, this is a good philosophy to bolster what we're doing. And they appropriated a lot of what Nietzsche wrote to justify 
their creation of the uberman, right, who, the, the strong disregarding the weak. Now, people debate how much the Nazis accurately understood what Nietzsche was saying. And, you know, I don't know for sure because I haven't read Nietzsche enough. But it seems to me that if you argue that the strong should be free to pursue their goals uninhibited by Christian values, you shouldn't be surprised if that leads to something like Nazi death camps. Right? So what I'm trying to say is Nietzsche recognized the influence of the church on the values that we have today, right? Nietzsche saw it, and he didn't like it, but he recognized it. He saw it. The world is a far more graceful place because of the church, because of the influence of Christ and those who have believed in him. Jesus said those who believe in him would do the works that he has been doing, and that has happened. We can look throughout history and see that it has happened. Despite the hypocrisies, despite the failures, this word has not failed. Nietzsche could tell. All right, what about the rest of that promise? We're not just going to do the works that Jesus did. We're going to do even greater ones. How can that possibly be? Is Jesus saying that our miracles that we do are going to be even greater than his, more, more impressive? Is he saying that we're going to love more sacrificially than him? That can't be right, right? Well, here's how I think we're supposed to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not talking about the quality of the works, but about the quantity and scope of the works, the quantity and scope. Remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a little seed that then grows into a huge tree. During Jesus's ministry, it was just a little seed, right? It was just one little movement in one little part of the world. But after Jesus returned to the Father, it's, that seed started growing and it started spreading. By the end of the disciples' lives, that seed had grown into a movement that went from the Iberian Peninsula to the Indian subcontinent. It was no longer located in just one little part of the world. And that movement went on to build hospitals and orphanages and schools, and it reshaped the values of entire cultures, which Nietzsche was able to recognize 1,800 years later, right? And everywhere it went, people found themselves experiencing God and being born again, and, and that continues to this day. So when Jesus said to this, the disciples, you're going to do greater works, he's saying, after I leave, things are just getting started. You have no idea how great, how big this is going to become through those who believe. That makes sense, right? All right, let's look at the last promise. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, 
and I will do it. How can that be? The key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is those three little words, in my name. Right? Jesus doesn't say, you may ask me for anything and I will do it. He says, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, the mistake that many people make is to think that what Jesus is saying is, if you just add the words in Jesus' name onto a prayer, then automatically he's got to give you what you ask for. Like it's some sort of magical incantation. You know, remember when you were a kid and you wanted something and you said, give me that. And your mom or dad would say, what's the magic word? And you'd say, please. And then they'd hand you the cookie, right? People think that Jesus is saying, this is, this is the magic word. This is the please. This is the holy please. You say, in Jesus' name, right? God, I want a Mustang. What's the magic word? I want a Mustang in Jesus' name. Oh, okay, it's on the way. But we know that's silly, right? We know that can't be what Jesus means. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the same spirit as Jesus. To pray in a way where it's like you are bearing the name of Jesus. You are representing him. You're asking for the kinds of things that Jesus would ask for. If we're praying for selfish things, we shouldn't expect that Jesus is going to answer those kinds of prayers. Because that's not the spirit of Jesus. Right? But if we're praying for help to do the kind of works that Jesus did, help for displaying God's love to the world, then yeah, Jesus is going to answer that. So we should not see this as a promise that Jesus will give us anything that we ask for. We should see it as a promise that if we ask to be part of what Jesus is doing in the world, we are in. He is going to create opportunities. He is going to orchestrate things. He is going to make things happen so that the kingdom of heaven is advancing in the world through us. That's the promise. Do you want to be a part of this? You can be. But you've got to be in relationship with me. You've got to pray. You've got to ask. It's not just going to happen automatically. I know that I've gone a little bit long this morning. So I, I want to finish with some encouragement. I'm going to offer my own paraphrase of these verses. And I want you to hear Jesus saying them to you right now. Okay, not to the disciples, not to pastors or missionaries, to you specifically. Okay, so if you want to just close your eyes for a minute, hear these words from Jesus to you. If you trust in me, you will do the kinds of things I did, especially loving your neighbors, and maybe even with some miracles. Anything's possible. And through you, the kingdom of God will grow even more because I'm in charge, and I give strength and power to those who trust me. And if you pray and ask to be part of what I'm doing, I will not leave you out. You will be part of the greater things. Do you want to be part of the greater things? You are invited. Trust me. 
Lord, may each one of us be able to receive that invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.